Hello, and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name's Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. So this month, you'll notice something different if you're a regular listener. I've been feeling a little under the weather, so our usually behind-the-scenes producer of the pod, Justin, has taken the reins. On this month's episode of Leukemia Chatters, we spoke to Debbie Greenwood, an AML patient diagnosed in November 2020. We spoke to Debbie about the impact of her diagnosis on her family, how they've gone on to access Leukemia Care's counselling fund, and the help that Debbie is now offering to other patients in similar situations. Debbie, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. With your story and with all stories, it kind of as, at the beginning with diagnosis and kind of how that came about for you. So, how how did it really? How, what led to your diagnosis? A series of fortunate events, I think. I had started to feel fairly tired. I'd lost interest in doing a lot of the things that I generally like doing, but nothing to put your finger on it. And looking back, there's certain things that you can say, ah, that that was part of it. But what pushed me to actually do anything about it was, was finding myself breathless going up the stairs. So I could walk fine, you know, anywhere sort of virtually on the flat was, was no problem. As soon as I started going up the hill or up the stairs, it was a different matter. And I, I found myself getting breathless and that was very strange. That was sort of the end of October. But looking back, when we first came out of the first lockdown in sort of September time, we'd gone for a walk up a local hill called Rosebury Topping with our daughter who was pregnant at the time. And I was breathless and she was doing okay. And we just laughed it off. And I thought, oh, perhaps I haven't done as much walking as I thought I had through through lockdown. So, but that was, you know, looking back how I first sort of noticed something different, but that wasn't anything. That was just fitness, I thought at the time. I think a really common element of of all diagnosis stories, really, of, of all patients we speak to, the symptoms can be quite vague with, say, the breathlessness or the fatigue. It's quite easy to write them off to chalk them up to something kind of less severe than, than what it might be um and you mentioned the tiredness and fatigue is one of the big symptoms that we talk about here at leukemia care so what was it that day-to-day experience of that tiredness and that fatigue how how was that for you i wasn't wiped out um but by afternoon i'd, I'd sort of want to lay on the sofa and, and watch something strange on telly and, and you know, falling in bed or, or something like that. And, you know, I've always been one for cooking for the family and every night we, we've always sat down as a family to eat dinner and I wasn't any interested in, in doing that. And that's a really strange thing, you know, I, not putting a, a decent meal in front of the family on an evening. And, and that was a bit bizarre. But, but it wasn't anything bad enough to do anything about. I just thought it was just, I don't know, who knows, the menopause. It could have been anything. And at the time, I'm guessing, it sounds like the the tiredness was that was the first symptom you noticed and then the breathlessness followed. Yeah, the, the breathlessness was only when I exerted myself. Mm. And, and by exert, I don't mean running a marathon. I meant going up the stairs. That, that was when it sort of really hit me. This, this isn't right. Getting breathless going up the stairs is not right. I had had bruises. I'd got some cracking bruises. And I'd sort of looked at them one day in the bath and thought, well, you get bruises with leukemia. Ah, and sort of passed 
it off as, as just a fact that I know, but nothing that would be relevant to me. And just thought, oh, I must be being particularly cl- clumsy at the moment. And, and nothing, no one thing shouted, you need to do something about this until the breathlessness got. I went for a walk with my brother and um, many, many years ago, he'd had a pulmonary embolism and he said, oh, your symptoms are very similar to mine. Get yourself checked out. So that was the Saturday. So on the Sunday was when I got in touch with my dad, 111, in the end, because it was Sunday. What was the response from 111 then? How did people get wrong? They asked me lots and lots of questions and um, uh, there was no real answers to any of them because there was nothing to speak of, nothing to put your finger on. But because of the breathlessness, I think, they said, oh, you need to get yourself to A&E in an hour, within the hour. Can you do it? I said, I can't do that. I said, my husband's at work. I was sat watching my son play football. <laughs> I've had these symptoms for three weeks now. And that's nothing's going to change. So anyway, I did go home and, and get some things together because I thought, oh, it's late in the day. It's Sunday. Perhaps they might want to keep me in overnight. So Paul got Alex from football, took me up to the hospital. I said, see you later, sweetheart. And, and went in and, and they did a blood test. And when you're in one of those cubicles and then they draw the curtains and then somehow you can't hear what they're saying because the curtains are drawn. But I heard this discussion about very low haemoglobin. We'll have to repeat the blood test. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So they did a repeat of the blood test and then a very lovely young doctor came in and he sat down and he started asking me some fairly searching, fairly deep questions. and the penny started dropping that there was something a little more serious wrong. And I said to him, gosh, no wonder you've sat down. So he said, look, we need to do some more blood tests and we've got to admit you. And, and so from being dropped off at the hospital at, oh, I don't know, something like four o'clock, by seven o'clock I was on the ward. So it was all done very, very quickly. The A&E doctor had phoned the hematology consultant and she'd given him a list of tests to do so by the next morning she had a pretty good idea of what she was coming into so so from arranging a halloween trail on saturday night to sunday night monday morning was was quite a big stretch it sounds like things escalated really really quickly for you there over the space of 24 hours taken up to the ward at seven o'clock i had bloods overnight I had platelets overnight. By 10 o'clock next morning, I'd seen Dr. Beshti and she said, you've got blood cancer. I don't know which sort yet. By four o'clock that afternoon, I had a bone marrow biopsy and by half past five, she was back over telling me it was leukemia, but she didn't know what. She'd have to send things off to Leeds and Sheffield and, and wherever. It was very swift, very, very swift. I think... I said at the beginning, a series of fortunate events, because I think if I'd have gone to the doctors presenting these very minimal symptoms, it might have been a lot longer before they'd have got to the diagnosis that was got to within hours in hospital. You, you mentioned that moment where you jokingly wrote off your bruises as being something like innocuous or just clumsiness. So it sounds like you had a degree of prior knowledge about leukemia. You knew some things about leukemia then before it was ever in your life, so to speak. That's as much as I knew, sure. in all honesty. And, I, and where I knew that from, I, I've no idea. I've obviously picked that up at some point in the past, but not enough to actually apply it to, to me. 
just to throw away thoughts and, and yeah. And over the course of this rapidly escalating weekend, 72 hours, you've been told that it was leukemia and it was a blood cancer. And obviously they weren't entirely sure of the exact subtype yet at that point, it sounded like. How did that news hit you? That it was a blood cancer, it was leukemia, that out of the blue like that? It hits you. It, it does hit you. And it, it all becomes a bit surreal. It's almost as if it's happening to somebody else and you're, you're watching on, if I'm really honest. And you go through the motions and you do what you're told because you can't do anything else. I didn't go into any form of shock or, or denial or anything like that. I think that's just perhaps my nature. There was a, an acceptance and, and right, let's, you know, this is what we've got. Let's see what we do need to do with it. Because I mean, when Dr. Beshti told me that it was, I think she suggested that it was AML from what she saw, because she did, she did a slide for herself when she did the biopsy. And the first thing she said, she did say, you, you've got leukemia, it is treatable. And she said that twice, it is treatable. And I think the way she emphasised that and the way she said it so quickly after you've got blood cancer or you, you've got leukemia, whichever one it was she said, I think that sort of set the tone then because I don't, I'd got this is treatable in my head as opposed to anything else. So for that, I'm very thankful. What are you planning to achieve this year? Does it include free-falling from 15,000 feet? Maybe flying on a zip wire is more your thing. Join Team LC this year, raising vital funds, as well as your pulse rate. We'll support you all the way in raising the money. The question is, are you brave enough to take on the challenge? Simply search online for Leukemia Care Zipwire or Leukemia Care Skydive to find out more. And the overarching backdrop and the wider context to your diagnosis and when this is all happening. So this was in winter 2020, I believe. First of November, yeah. First of November 2020. Yeah, we weren't actually in lockdown at that point. We, we went into, I came out of hospital on the Thursday and that's when we went back into proper lockdown. Because um, my hairdresser, bless her, who shan't be named for legal reasons, um, came to my house and cut my hair for me. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, very still restricted on kind of hospitals and who could go in, and in that kind of that sense, how did that element of things impact your diagnosis and your family's experience at that time as well? Normally, we face things together, you know. And as far as Paul had concer- was concerned, he'd drop me off at A and E, and he'd be picking me up the next phone call he got. That was an incredibly difficult phone call to make. And I didn't, it wasn't the first phone call I made. The first one was to our neighbours across the road just to find out if they were around because I didn't want Paul to be by himself when he got that news. I just told him, you know, and, and, but I wasn't there to, to be with him. I wasn't there to, to pick up the pieces. I wasn't there to explain anything because we didn't know anything at the time. So, so the, the not knowing is, is the hardest bit. When it came to those early days then, obviously, after you'd received this diagnosis and you're in the throes of coming to terms with it yourself, let alone having to share that news with family and friends and them getting to their own grips with it well at that time. What were your thoughts and feelings in those early days? The early days, there wasn't time for thinking too much about it. You know, that I, there was a whole new language to learn. There was a whole new 
diet to come to terms with. There was a whole, there was tests, there was blood, there was going over things time and time and time again. There was, you know, come across at four o'clock and we'll do a bone marrow biopsy. So you you don't know what you're in for when you go across for one of those. There was just a lot to start to learn, understand. and, And so we didn't tell a lot of people verbally. I, I, I got my brothers to go to my mum and dad's and I made that phone call. I said, right, listen carefully because I I only want to talk about this once and I don't want to answer questions, but I just need to get this out. And the, then probably a couple of days later, we video chatted the children, the older children. We've got four older children who don't live at home. So we got them on a WhatsApp call and, and tried to put a very positive spin on it. And everybody else, I just wrote a long text message and said, just said, not ready to talk yet. Not easy to tell you, but this is where we are. We'll speak to you soon. Would you have done it the same if you did it again now? Yes, I would. Because it meant everybody got the news at the same time. We didn't have to repeat ourselves. It took the pressure of going up and answering the same questions over and over and over again. People came back with their lovely messages and things, but as for telling people, we could control the narrative. You know, it, I'm hesitating because I had a very different narrative to my parents, and, and that's exactly why I wanted to control the narrative. So we, without being blasé or over-optimistic or anything, we didn't want to go down the woe-is-me route you know, we wanted to tell people, we wanted to leave it so that people could get in touch with us if they wanted, without feeling like they had to tread on eggshells or anything. It's a fact, you know, one in two people are going to get a cancer of, of some description, so we can't hide away from it. So we just treated it as a, as a sort of factual exercise and, and provided people with as much factual information as, as we could and told them not to Google. My mum and dad chose another route which wouldn't be my route, but they, you know, their, their email to their friends started, we're devastated to tell you. And I felt things sort of, that wasn't the message I wanted to get across. You know, I'm still here. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was different. So, so, yeah, I think it's about deciding on what your narrative wants to be, how you want people to react to you. I needed people to know that they could talk to us. I needed people to know that they could ask questions without feeling that they were being putting us up in an awkward position or asking us something that they didn't want to ask. I wanted to jump back on something you mentioned earlier about this language you have to learn. And there, there is, those early days have such a steep learning curve of you're kind of thrown headfirst into the world of blood cancer and everything that comes with it. And there is... Who's heard of neutrophils? Who's heard of neutrophils? <laughs> you know? And yet, for the last... 20 months I've lived by the neutrophil number. It, it, it is a whole new language of, of all sorts of things. Hematology is, is a spectacularly interesting subject. Obviously, on top of everything else you're dealing with, having to get to grips with this new treatments and counts and terminology and jargon and everything else in between that you're having to now keep a keep an eye on and keep on top of it's no it is it is a lot and as well as a part of that is the explanation of your treatment plan and the days ahead and what they what they look like for you so how did your doctors and your medical team explain to you the outset of your chemotherapy and and the plan ahead for you well that was a couple of weeks when they try and diagnose leukemia 
there's so many different types of leukemia and then there's so many different types of the types of the types of leukemia. So before you can talk about your treatment path, they need to know what they're dealing with. So that was felt like about four years, but in actual fact, it was about two, two weeks really for me coming out of hospital to actually being set off on, on my treatment path. So I was, here's another new language, <laughs> the chemotherapy language that goes with it. I was, it was always made clear to me that my path included the stem cell transplant, two rounds of chemotherapy. The plan was that the first one would put me into remission, the second one would sweep up, and the third time I was in hospital would then be um, the transplant, which is fine. But then there's a new worry. What happens if they don't find a, a donor? What happens if they can't find anybody to match me? And, that, and that's a whole new other worry. You're exactly right. It is, um, it is kind of this, this cascade of what what ifs and what what could potentially happen at those points. And with you in the hospital and undergoing treatment, and how long were you in for in that first stint then? I was in for four days initially. But then my treatment was actually undertaken at Leeds. So I was sent home to be in isolation. And I had, I can't remember if it was daily or every other day or, or something like that, blood tests and, and transfusions at Harrogate until such time as I was admitted to Leeds. So they, they just kept me, kept me going in Harrogate until they literally could hand me over to Leeds for, for treatment. And when they explained to you the this outlook of your treatment i'm assuming they also kind of explain to you the potential side effects that you might be experiencing through this time there was conversations which of course you don't hear all of it you only hear part of it and having somebody with you in those appointments is so important not only to listen to the bits that perhaps you don't listen to but also to ask the questions that you might not think of the consultants and the specialist nurses had all the time in the world. You know, there was never a, a, a time when I felt rushed or stupid for asking what was actually a very simple question, it turns out, but they were absolutely fabulous. I found the webinars really interesting, again, because I think of the lack of information you're given during treatment. And if you are given information, often at the time, it just it's just in one ear, out the other. So at the time, I think I didn't really take in a lot of the information and my husband did. And so after treatment, I actually went back to your YouTube channel and watched a lot of your webinars. Most recently, there was one on acute lymphoblastic leukaemia, which I found really useful. Leukaemia Care's informational webinars are about the topics that matter to you, whether that be the current news in COVID, the latest developments in treatment and much more. You can hear from patients and healthcare professionals alike, providing insight on all things leukaemia. Watching it live even lets you post questions directly to those panels. Find out when our next webinar is scheduled by heading on over to our social media or our website. Or to watch those you've already missed, check out our YouTube channel. They, they give you books to read and, and they're written by different people. And, and one of them I found really helpful. One of them was okay. And one of them I just found quite frightening and just put it to one side. The side effects are severe, potentially. The side effects of not having the treatment is equally severe. So you're not really left with an awful lot of choice. For me, the way my brain works, I put the potentials back 
what could happen into a metaphorical box. And that box only actually gets opened if I actually have to face it. There is a danger that you worry about every single side effect that you might come across. And that, for me, would have brought me too far down. So the initial conversations about you're going to have to have chemotherapy and, and is one thing, but the, the actual time that the side effects really, for me, hit hard was when you're admitted to hospital and they have a pink form, we call it the pink form that you they fill out and you've got to sign to say you accept everything. You know, she said, is that all right? And I said, well, not really much choice. And I think my my biggest fear at that point was needing to go into intensive care because there were so many COVID patients around, you know, the thought of having to be ill, to have side effects so bad that I needed to go into intensive care. And it was a, it was a really real possibility. That was my biggest fear of all of them. Thank you for sharing that with me. And over the course of your treatment, I know not quite a side effect, but you need to deal with quite a lot of sepsis, it sounded like, over that period of treatment. I think to have blood cancer and to have chemotherapy and not have sepsis is pretty rare. It, it, it is one of those things because you have no immune system to fight anything off. So I had several rounds of sepsis brought on by, usually by my PIC line or my Hickman line. Um, so even in that first round of chemotherapy, it was an inpatient. I still had a flare-up of, of sepsis, which was treated quite successfully and very quickly with antibiotics. And it was just a thing. They, they tell you, you know, you, you're likely to get it. Please don't think that you won't because the chances are so high. So it's sort of par for the course, really. And around about in the February time after your diagnosis, I believe, I think you, you, you got in touch with Leukaemia Care at that point. Is that, is, was that accurate? Yeah, I had... Um, one round of chemotherapy as an inpatient in January, in November. My second round as an outpatient in January. And I think that virtually killed off my bone marrow com completely. And I was going back to the hospital every day for blood tests and, and top-ups of platelets and haemoglobin and whatnot. And this one day, it was a Friday, I went and my temperature was raised and they admitted me there and then there's, there's really no messing about with this and that was when they just kept trying different antibiotics so for a period of a month and a half I, nothing was working and, and I was very down very very down and that's when leukemia care um, one of the nurses put me in touch with uh, leukemia care and they sanctioned some counselling, not just for me, because I was in a dark place, but for my son, who was left at home wondering where his mum was. You know, she went to hospital as usual on Friday. She's not been home for over a month. You know, that, that was, will she ever come home? He was in a, you know, he was really struggling at this point. So it wasn't just me that leukemia care started some counselling for but my son as well. It's great to hear that you managed to access that. And what was the impact of that counselling on your and your son Alex's experiences kind of at that time then? What would you say? Let's talk about Alex first. <laughs> sure. Alex, I think, worried terribly. And as a 13-year-old, understood 
a lot of what was going on, but like the rest of us didn't understand everything and we didn't have any answers for him. I mean, there must have been some things going through his head. Um, you know, is my mum going to die? One of his friends' dads had died of leukaemia not long before. So, and we didn't know he knew that at the time. They, they just came out afterwards. So that's already going through his head. But who can he say that to? He can't say to me, mum, are you going to die? He can't say to his dad, dad, is mum going to die? So he needed somebody to be able to voice those fears without feeling that he was saying the wrong thing or upsetting anybody. And he needed to start to manage the anxiety he had that every time I walked out of a room or walked out of the house, I went to the hospital for a checkup because I was going every day at that point, you know, I was going to come home. You know, it, it, it really started to worry about that. So the counsellor very quickly helped him put things a little bit more into perspective and, and find ways of coping. He still tracks my phone now. Obviously, getting patients the mental health support that they need throughout the process is very important to us, but often overlooked other other family members and other other loved ones. So they're kind of alongside the, every step of the way, really. And if you were to give a piece of advice to a family member of someone else who's dealing with a leukemia diagnosis, kind of what would, especially concerning their mental health, what would your piece of advice be? Everybody should have a counsellor. <laughs> I think. It's a safe person to, to voice the very real fears and the things that bother us and, and hold us back. You see, even as a patient, you go to dark places and, and you don't want to put that worry on, on your husband. And even labelling something. For me, one of the biggest light bulb moments was when my counsellor said, you've been through a trauma. Being that diagnosis was a trauma for you and it is going to affect you because I was very emotional. I was crying at the drop of a hat and, and for no real reason. She said, you know, it's, it, trauma's like an elastic band. You know, you, you, you pull on it, you pull on it and every now and again it twangs you back and takes you right back to that moment when you were diagnosed or that moment where the trigger is. And she says, and as time goes by, that pull will get weaker and weaker and weaker, but it's... Like and it was just such a light bulb moment. I thought, yes, I can understand that. And it just helped me deal with things very much quicker, I think. There's not time to process the diagnosis when you're first diagnosed. You, you just, your feet don't touch the ground and you, you go from one appointment, one, one thing to the next thing with, without time to draw breath. And it is only later when you do get time to sort of go over stuff that you do need to start processing. and filing things away and, and thinking about things. And, and that's when counselling really helps. That's, um, that's been a really great message to put out there about mental health support and how... I mean, my husband is having counselling now. Leukaemia care would have supported him, but his work is doing it anyway. It isn't that leukaemia care said no to Paul, but he wasn't ready for it at the time. He was still in coping mode you know he had to hold everything together and it isn't until he can take a step back from that mode that it's it sort of hit him so he came to it much later but you know leukemia care were very willing to to look after Paul as well so and if there was someone 
say, on the fence about accessing counselling or accessing the counselling fund, what would you say to them? Try it. Just just try it and give it time because it takes a few sessions to actually feel the benefits or to appreciate that changes, a change in your thought process is, is happening. Leukemia care supporters were six sessions each. I actually carried on my counselling for a whole year and Alex was about four months. You know, the first session you just think, well, that didn't do much. The second session you think, oh, that was a bit emotional. The third session you're in pieces. The fourth session you're sort of starting to feel a bit more positive about it. And I sort of likened it to my counsellor, like coming home from holiday with a big bag. So you take off the dirty washing that's at the top and you sling it in the washer and that's that dealt with. You put the clean things away, that's those dealt with. And it's not till you've unpacked all the little bits in the bottom that, that aren't so easy to put away that actually the counselling is really working. So it, it, there's several layers to it and, and it, you don't always get to the real nitty gritty bit until a number of sessions in. Great analogy. No, that's a really great analogy. No, no, that works really well. That works really well. Um, I think this speaks a lot more, I think your wider outlook and perspective about accessing help more broadly beyond mental health support as well. And the idea that people shouldn't be afraid to access help and be to what's available to them. So tell me a bit about that. We wouldn't have got through this without the help and support of our friends and neighbours and family. I've always been happy to help, always been happy to help, but never been happy to ask for help. And yet here I am in a position where actually to say yes to the help made a massive difference to how we coped with everything as a family. For instance, the neighbours went on a rotor to cook a meal. So there was nine families, I think, on, on the rotor doing one meal every three weeks, which meant that we were getting three meals a week, three proper cooked, fresh, nutritional meals every week, whether I was in hospital or not. And that made such a big difference to my health and my family's health. It took a worry off Paul because he didn't have to worry about going to work and, and looking after Alex and feeding Alex. And, and another friend came in and literally swooped in and, and took Alex up and, and he went to live at their house for a good bit of the time, just became another member of their family, which was hard, but it also took other worry from Alex because he wasn't involved in the day-to-day -day side of things. I think messaging and texting and things like that were important and, that, and that's where everybody else came in when you are in isolation and what I found was the most important thing to me was to be normal to have normal conversations yes you can ask how somebody is and, and you know how they're doing but actually you don't want to talk about chemotherapy you don't want to talk about side effects you want to talk about what the kids are doing where they're going on holiday what's happening at work what what so-and-so's done, all the things that you know talk about, you want to talk about. You don't want to be focused on this diagnosis and this treatment. And, and having somebody send you a text to make you laugh, to make you cry with laughter, every time you read it over a number of weeks is, is absolutely priceless.
I think when you look at it, everyone is so willing to help and you just have to be be willing to ask for it really and pay it that way. And, and I know as part of your willingness to help, you've done a really great thing right now and you've offered leukemia patients access to your holiday let at the minute uh, for a, a month of the year. Tell me a bit about that and what drove you to do that. There's a number of charities that have supported us one way or another. Leukemia Care is one. The Hooks on a Tray Ladies at Leeds fundraise to pay for the televisions and, and refreshments in the rooms. Maggie's is there with a cup of tea and some advice and some help. And you use them when you need them. And having used those charities, we just felt we wanted to repay them in some way. I don't necessarily think that writing a cheque is always the best way to repay them. So for Maggie's and for the Hugs on the Tray Ladies, when it was my first transplant anniversary, rather than asking friends, we had a party, we had a great party. But rather than asking friends to bring a bottle or a gift, we asked them just to contribute to a fund. And we split that between Maggie's and Hooks on a Tray, which, which was fine. For Leukemia Care, the, you probably have access to patients in a different way. Shirley goes into Leeds and, and meets patients and sees patients. We have a lovely cottage that we let out for holidays in Scotland in a very, very peaceful part of Dumfries and Galloway. It has beautiful views across the bay and it has long walks along the beach and not a lot else. And when you're recovering from something like a transplant or chemotherapy and you have no immune system, being able to go somewhere that is safe and not crowded and clean air and nice views we just felt how much benefit it did us, particularly me. I mean, you know, just to walk along the beach, no hills, no steps, just to walk along the beach um, was lovely. And, and I really felt the benefit of it. And we just felt it would be nice if other people could feel that benefit too. No, that is a great, great thing that you're doing. And we really do appreciate that here. Um I think giving other patients the opportunity to experience that is that is is a, is a lovely, lovely thing and a great thing you're doing. Debbie, thank you so much for chatting with me this afternoon. It's been a real pleasure to hear your story and hear your perspective on everything. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 08088 010444. See you next month.